guys, I'm your host, Tara A. Devlin, and welcome to this week's episode of Koobana, true Japanese scary stories from around the internet. My latest book, Mei Taisho, Bizarre Incidents from Japan's Past, is now out. If hearing about some of the weird, bizarre, strange, and downright frightening events from the last 100 or so years of Japanese history interests you, then do head over and check it out right now. We also have a brand new design up in the Koabana merchandise store. You can check that out at koabana.store. We have shirts, mugs, stickers, masks, and much more, so do check it out and help support the show at the same time. This week, we're looking at several stories that warn of dangers unseen. At least, unseen to most eyes. First up, two young friends head to an abandoned shrine and decide to build their own there out of leftover materials. They even find a Jizo statue to place in it, but soon they realise the shrine may not be as empty as it looks. Find out why in Let's Build a Shrine. This happened when I was in the fourth grade, about 15 years ago now. At the time, I often played with a kid by the name of Yamanaka, Most kids played video games at the time, but Yamanaka's parents wouldn't let him have a console, so instead, he mostly played outside. As such, he knew all sorts of games. Like, we would try to hit rocks across a stream with a stick to see if we could get it to bounce ten times, and stuff like that. We met in the fourth grade when we got assigned to our new classes, and because I grew up mostly playing video games, all of this was new and exciting to me and Yamanaka knew so many places to play as well. Like an outlet where sewerage flowed into the mouth of a river and such. It was a pipe more than three metres high, and we would explore it when there was no water flowing through it. There was also an electric distribution tower at the foot of the mountain where we played as well. In hindsight, our school would have gotten so angry if they knew where we were playing, but he really was knowledgeable about such locations. And so, we would ride our bikes together after school visiting such places. Just thinking about it really makes me miss those days. And, in his own way, Yamanaka really was a great guy. He never said anything that might upset others, and although he was just a kid himself, he always took great care of me. It's only now that I finally realise that. But he never had any money of his own so it was always up to me to buy him ice cream and drinks and such. Ah, alright, let's get into the story. It was the summer holidays, and we went to a shrine that was located outside of our school district. It was a small place, and I don't think it even had a priest. The doors to the main building were closed as well. The reason we went there is that Yamanaka said there were ant lions in the sandy area beneath the main building of the shrine. So, the main building of this shrine was on stilts. If you crawled beneath it, then there was this really fine sand with lots of dips in it. I stuck my hand into one of these dents, and pulling it back out with a bunch of sand, it was also full of antlions. Now, it wasn't like we killed them. We just observed them. It was the ants that were being killed. And it wasn't like we killed them. All we did was put the ants in the antlion holes. They kept trying to escape, but 
the sand was too slippery, and so they would fall further and further into the holes. Then, once they fell into the middle, the little scissors would come out and grab them. We watched that for ages, but after an hour or so passed, we started to get bored, and so we went around to the back of the shrine instead. It was a deep wooded area, and in contrast to the strong sunlight in the rest of the shrine grounds, it felt dank and dark. Anyway, there were lots of wooden planks of all different sizes propped against the pillars of the building there. Maybe they were leftovers from when they built it or something. None of it looked particularly interesting to me, but then Yamanaka picked up one of the planks. Hey, why don't we build a shrine? He said. Looking back on it now, he probably meant one of those small auxiliary shrines that accompany the larger ones. You know how you see all those little ones on the way leading up to the big one? Something like that. At any rate, I thought the idea sounded interesting, and so the two of us set about putting the planks together. Of course, we didn't have nails or anything with us, nor did we have any tape, so we kind of just stuck the planks in the ground and then put a plank on top for a roof. Yamanaka wanted it to look like a triangular roof, but we couldn't really get it to work. Once we were done building the small shrine that was just a little taller than us, Yamanaka said he wanted to build a shrine gate. I didn't think that would be possible, but it was unexpectedly easy. We picked up as many straight branches as we could from the woods, put two in the ground, and then tied others on top with some vines we found. And with that, it looked just like a real shrine. We were quite satisfied with ourselves. This isn't enough, Yamanaka then said. We need to put an idol in there to worship. Looking back on it now, that probably wasn't the right word to use. It should have been a goshintai, right? Anyway, putting that aside, the two of us looked for something we could use as the sacred object. But, of course, there was nothing like that nearby. We wandered around the woods for a bit, and as we found our way out and came upon a rice field, we found a small Jizo statue. His hood and bib were tattered from all the rain, and the years had weathered away most of his face. That will do, Yamanaka said, and I quickly agreed. At the time, I didn't think there would be anything wrong with moving the jizo, but it sure was a struggle. It might have been small, but it was still made of stone, and thus rather heavy. We carried it together by the head and legs, puffing all the way back to the shrine. But when we put it inside, it all came together. I went to pray immediately, but Yamanaka stopped me. We have to give it an offering. Should I go get some bread then? I asked. No, I don't think that'll make it happy. Let's make something. We went back to the shrine grounds and towards the water bowl for washing one's hands. He scooped up some water, then took that back to the main shrine building. He crawled underneath and then made a few balls out of sand. I copied him right away. The sand quickly fell apart, but once we had five or six between us, Yamanaka said, They're done, and put some of the antlions we had dug up in them. We took those back to the shrine we built and put them on the ground between the gate and the small building with the Jizo statue. Then we clapped our hands and prayed. 
I don't remember what I prayed for, but it was probably something like getting a better score on my tests. Once we were done, we both felt satisfied with our work. I'd love to attach a bell, Yamanaka said. I think I've got a small one at home, I replied, and so we agreed to come back again the following day. We played somewhere else for another two hours that day, and then we went home. The next day, Yamanaka and I went to the shrine again. The balls of sand we made the day before had fallen apart, and each of them had a hole like someone had stuck their pinky finger inside. I wonder if the jizo dug the insides out and ate them, Yamanaka said, but I thought that the antlions had probably just escaped on their own. Anyway, I tied a simple string to a bell, we attached it, and it looked even more like a shrine. But when I pulled on the string to ring the bell, I heard a voice. Not enough. Eh? I thought, and looked around. Did you say something just now? Yamanaka asked me. No, nothing. I thought I heard someone say, Not enough. Me too. Hmm, how can I describe the voice? It sounded male, I think, but it wasn't an elderly man. More like a boy, I guess. Then I guess it was the Jizo, Yamanaka said, surprising me. How on earth could a stone statue talk? But Yamanaka didn't seem to find the thought strange. Shall we go catch some frogs or something and put them in the balls too, he said. Naturally, I didn't want to do that, so I refused. How about we get some snacks or something? And so the two of us left the shrine and pedaled to a nearby sweet store. We bought some cheap bags of snacks and then left those as an offering. I paid for them, of course, but Yamanaka looked uninterested. That day we bought some insect nets, so we then walked around the forest trying to catch bugs. After I returned home for the day, I ran into my grandmother, who was just returning from work in the fields. She looked somewhat frightened when she saw me. Have you been doing something you shouldn't have? She asked. There's something black sitting on your shoulder. No, nothing. We were just catching bugs, I said, and I showed her what I caught. Is that so? Well, we can't just leave you like that, she said. She grabbed the collar of my shirt and pulled me into the house, then forced me to sit in front of the family altar. For a whole hour, she made me sit there with her and pray. Of course, I didn't like it, and I had no idea why I had to do it, but I didn't have any choice either. My grandmother was only just past 60, and she worked in the fields every day, so she was much stronger than I was. Stop playing strange games and do your homework, she said when we were done, and then she gave me a little pocket money. The next day, I went back to the shrine with Yamanaka. Smirking, he went around the back ahead of me, and when we reached our shrine, we found a dead cat in front of it. Oh wow, I thought. There was a hole in it, just like the sandballs. Did you do this? I asked Yamanaka. He looked at me with surprise. No. I mean, I found the body and brought it here, but 
I didn't put a hole in it, he said, his voice a little hoarse. Then he turned the cat over with his foot. See, the bag of snacks you brought is just the same. I guess the cummy summer liked the cat too. I felt sick, and suddenly I was no longer interested in the shrine. Hey, why don't we go to the pool? I asked Yamanaka. Ah, yeah, that sounds good, he said, and we went to leave without praying. But as we did, I heard that same voice again. Not enough. Yamanaka and I looked around, but there was nobody else there. I ran to my bike and Yamanaka followed. We pedalled as fast as we could home and decided to grab our pool stuff and meet up there again. That was the last time I ever saw him though. I grabbed my stuff for the pool and cycled to the bus stop where we agreed to meet, but once I got there, I heard sirens and saw numerous cars parked in the area. There were police cars and an ambulance as well. I got there right as someone was being put into the ambulance on a stretcher, and although I could only see the legs, the shoes looked just like Yamanaka's tattered ones. Unable to do anything, I went straight back home. I was watching TV alone when my mother returned from her part-time job. I heard a kid was involved in an accident, she said. The neighbours were talking about it. Did you hear anything? I shook my head no. I later heard that Yamanaka was riding his bike behind a truck when several iron bars fell out, piercing his head. He died instantly. When my grandmother returned home just before dinner, she looked at me and said, That's why I told you to stop playing those games. She then made me sit in front of the family altar for another two hours. And well, that's the end of the story. My grandmother stayed by my side for a while after that to watch over me while I did my homework. And, thanks to that, I was able to finish all my homework before school started again. And despite the fact that I was Yamanaka's closest friend, I wasn't invited to his funeral. His family were part of a new religion, and so only people from that were invited. Of course, I never told anyone, not even my grandmother about what happened at the shrine. This is the first time I've told anyone about it. Oh, and about that shrine. Shortly after the summer holidays ended, I went back there alone, even though I was quite afraid. I went around the back, and the shrine and shrine gate that we made were gone, but the Jizo statue was still there. When we first saw it, I couldn't make out any expression on its face, but when I saw it this time, it appeared to be smiling. Ah, now it's had enough, I thought. Next up, a tired businessman decides to get a massage while on a hot spring trip, but it turns out that the masseuse can not only soothe tired muscles, but remove impurities as well. How exactly does that work? Find out in The Hot Spring District Masseuse. This happened to a former colleague of mine. Apparently, a former business partner of his invited him to go on a hot spring trip. When they were done enjoying the hot springs and nice food, they decided it was about time for bed when a waitress approached them. 
Why don't you get a massage before bed? She suggested. We have a very good masseuse here. His shoulders felt terribly stiff and that was causing him a lot of migraines. He mentioned this to his partner so the waitress must have overheard him. If you say so, then sure, sounds good, he said. And so he went to get a massage. The masseuse was a healthy, robust young man in the prime of his life and there was a certain air about him. Yeah, he does look like he knows what he's doing, he thought. The masseuse asked him numerous questions before the massage began and for some reason that alone seemed to soothe the stiffness in his body. It's one of the techniques we use to help relax the muscles, the masseuse said with a laugh and then began the massage. Well, you certainly are very stiff. I'm not sure once will be enough to get the job done. The man did appear to be quite skilled at his job, and the areas he massaged became less and less stiff. He sighed as he let his entire body relax, but before long, he noticed something strange. The way the masseuse was moving was odd. He could feel him pushing and prodding the muscles, but every once in a while, he would push his fingers into the muscles, and then seemed to pull something out. He was lying on his back, so he couldn't see what exactly it was that he was doing, but he was intrigued. Finally, when he rolled over to lie on his back, he was able to confirm for the first time just what the masseuse was doing. As he massaged his legs, the masseuse pulled something black out of him. It was awfully small, but shook violently. It was black and blurry, so he couldn't see what it was clearly. But as soon as it was pulled out, his body relaxed immediately. Uncaring that he was being watched, the masseuse immediately put the black thing into a bag next to the table, and then continued like it was perfectly normal. Unable to bear it any longer, my colleague finally asked him about it. What on earth was that you pulled out just now? It wasn't alive, was it? Ah, so you could see it, the masseuse said. It's a clot of fatigue and bad thoughts. You might say it's the karma a working person builds up. When not just the muscles but the mind loosens up as well, then you can sometimes see it move. It's a kind of optical illusion, or I guess how the brain just perceives that information, maybe. Apparently, there are some people who just can't see it at all, though. Of course, it's not something alive, either. Somehow, he felt like he'd been skillfully deceived. Was it perhaps true that, just like there were people who could see ghosts, there were perhaps people who could see the source of stiff shoulders as well? But it still didn't make much sense. So we asked him again. So, that thing you removed, the, uh, karma, what are you going to do with it? The masseuse answered right away. Eat it, of course. Human karma is unbelievably delicious. He stared at the masseuse for a moment before he smiled and waved his hand in the air. What? Did you actually believe that? Come on, it was all a joke. Just a joke. Think of it as nothing more than a countryside masseuse's boring.
adoring sleight of hand. And then the massage was over. The masseuse really was good at his job and the stiffness that had been troubling him for years seemed to disappear, just like that. But even now, he says, he's still confused by what that wiggling thing was. Finally, we have part three in the My Friend in the Tape series. This time around, we learn a little more about T's past and how his plans to visit the cave may potentially end up costing him his life. Find out why in My Friend in the Tape 3. This is B, and this is a follow-up to My Friend in the Tape 2. I'm posting this for T, who wrote about the 2012 Golden Week holidays. T wrote this himself at the end as well, but it seems he was rather scared of that cave. There were so many sentences and conversations that weren't necessary. He wrote two pieces about Golden Week, but I've taken the longer one, as it paints a bigger picture of T and C. During Golden Week of 2012, I quickly returned to my parents' house, but before then, I went to visit E's mother to return the stuff I'd borrowed. There was a message here for you, I told her, but I erased everything else from the laptop and notebook. After returning those, I went to visit B, who was the only one who knew about the video. B was intrigued by the thing on the prefectural border, but I told him, we don't have any clues, so there's no way for us to look for it. I knew that if I told B about the cave, then he would immediately want to go, so I prepared quietly without telling anyone about it. That night, I got on my bike because I knew it would be too difficult to find a car park and went to our usual friend's reunion for the holidays. D, being the usual free spirit he was, didn't attend because he was apparently on a bike trip around the country. Every now and then C looked at me like she wanted to say something, but then she just drank her oolong tea. Once the party was over, we were deciding whether to head to another place or go home for the night, when C said she wanted to talk to me privately. I was tired from both the trip back and the party, so we went to a cafe, and I got an espresso to try to perk up. Do you remember M from my class in the fifth grade? C asked me. Ah, yeah I do. We were in the same grade in junior high, too. She was cute, but always alone, right? She always seemed like she was afraid of me or didn't like me much, so we never spoke. Come to think of it, I don't think I ever saw her talk to anyone but you. She didn't hate you. Apparently, she can see guardian spirits or something behind people sometimes, so she avoided those people. Anyway, I suddenly got a call from her last week asking if you were okay. She said she wanted to see you. Eh? You moved in the sixth grade, right? You came to our graduation ceremony by car and then saw your parents off because you wanted to hang out with us. My dad had to drop you off after that. So, how does M know your phone number? I asked. Huh? We moved to a new house within the same city, so our number didn't change. You called me so many times over the years and you never realised? Holy crap, I can't believe you, C said. Well, now that you mention it, yeah, your number didn't change, huh? So it was the same number in our graduation album. 
Anyway, if she wants to see me, as long as it's not this day or this day, then it's fine. Do you think she's grown into a hot babe? I wanted to see her again one more time while we were still in our 20s. You know what? I'm done here. You must be tired as well from all that travel. Ah, yeah, sorry. Your parents will probably want to chat for a while if I run into them, so do you want me to just drop you off in front of your house? I asked. They'll hear your bike though. I always carried two helmets with me just in case I ever had to take C home, which I generally did whenever we met. It seemed I'd made her cry, so we took the scenic route back to her house and I dropped her off. I lent her my jacket, so I couldn't stop shaking in the cold, but I almost passed out several times in the bath before I hit the hay. The next day, C called me as I was doing maintenance on my car and bike, and we agreed to meet M two days later. And as for the cave, well, I couldn't rule out that E had maybe been infected by an unknown virus, so I asked my mother, a medical professional, for two N95 masks, including one I would use for a fitting test. Next, I brought some climbing ropes and asked a classmate from high school who was a part of the Coast Guard, as well as a friend who was a firefighter, to help me with tying, how to descend, and how to safely use them. The Coast Guard and firefighters are always busy when regular people have their days off, and it can be deadly if they don't get enough sleep, so we called it a day quite early. I'd never spoken to M before, but she had no doubt grown into a beautiful woman, so I was excited to meet her. In fact, I was so excited that I showed up to the meeting in brand new clothes I bought just the day before. With a new haircut, of course. Rather than my well-worn cargo pants or oil-stained jeans. I arrived five minutes early, and C approached with a smile as she saw my car. Eh? C's here? I'm not meeting Emma alone. Although, I have no idea what she looks like now, I thought. I got out of the car to greet her, and she gave me the once-over before turning a cold eye. An unexpectedly beautiful, reserved-looking woman approached behind C. It was M. Huh. You sure are going all out for this, aren't you? C said coldly, and without greeting. But I ignored her, and went to greet M. We decided to head somewhere else to talk first, so I told C to get in the back. You're the third wheel here today, so you sit back there, I said. I don't mind sitting in the back, M replied. Excuse me, she said as she stepped in. What a fine, feminine, and virtuous woman she was. C glared at me as she got in. We were classmates, so do you mind if I call you M-chan? I asked. Sorry it's so small back there. It's mostly for emergencies, but there is a seatbelt. We then set off. She wanted to avoid people, so we went to a restaurant on the outskirts of town we reserved beforehand. M seemed a little nervous, so we ate while we talked. So, my boss at the coffee shop asked me if I had a passport, and when I said I did, the following year he sent me to America for three years. He wanted me to rebuild one of the departments over there, but I couldn't even speak English. When I got there and someone spoke to me, suddenly the only thing I could spit out was, How much? <laughs> I said. 
Even I was surprised, C replied. You're even worse at English than I am. You studied for TOEIC the year before you left and only got 630 points, right? Shut up. You're the only one who can get a score of 780 like it's nothing without even studying or having been abroad beforehand. But you still came back every summer. When we went to pick him up at the airport, he burst out singing, Camp de Hoy! And we all burst out laughing, C said. During his second year, I think it was, he said he was going to return completely Americanized, but his clothes said that he didn't quite understand what that meant. At this point, she finally relaxed and smiled. Emchan, what did you do after graduation? I asked. I worked as a pharmacist at a national hospital for five years, and now I work at my mother's pharmacy. A pharmacist, huh? You must be real smart. I don't know anything about that stuff. Oh yeah, I remember you wrote in our graduation book that you wanted to become a pharmacist. That's pretty cool that your dream came true. On that note, what was it that you wanted to see me about? M's expression became tense. Yes. Are you planning on doing anything soon? I have this feeling that something bad is going to happen to you. C was flabbergasted. My heart also started pounding wildly. I hadn't told anyone about the cave yet. Even when I learnt how to use the climbing ropes, it was from classmates I didn't know so well, and I hadn't seen M since our junior high graduation anyway. Eh? Why do you say that? I asked, the shock no doubt showing on my face. You might think I'm strange for saying this, but when I saw you today, I was convinced. Of what? Say it. I'll decide whether you're a weirdo or not after I hear it. Don't make that decision for me. If she was going to say something about the cave, I didn't want C to hear it, so I handed her the keys and told her that I'd call for her once we were done. She wasn't very happy about that. If I just say it, then it probably won't make much sense, so let me explain from the beginning, M said. When I was just a child, I could see and sense spirits attached to people. Some of these spirits looked so unbearable that I gradually started to avoid them. And that's why you avoided me too, huh? Hearing it in her own words made me start to think she might be a little out there. If she started talking about previous lives and such, then that would seal the deal. Well, the spirits following you were so powerful that I was afraid. Eh? Your guardian spirits. There's a female Kamisama, a great warrior from the Edo period, and a white horse, M said. I'd never seen anything like it before, and I didn't know how they were connected to you either. Huh? <laughs> Hang on a minute. A female Kamisama, a great warrior, and a white horse. Can you draw the woman's face? I asked. And she did. That's my grandmother. Although, I've only ever seen a portrait of her. It's the same as the picture hanging at a shrine near the house I lived in before elementary school. A military commander built it in honour of a Kamisama, and after he died, he was enshrined in several places. That was one of them. There was a picture of a white horse there, too. 
My grandmother passed away when my father was still in school, and the priest said it was dedicated to her. Is that so? M said. Then perhaps it is your grandmother watching over you. Hmm, alright. I'll believe you on that front. We moved around the time I started elementary school, so all of that happened before I got to know C. Both my parents worked, so I would play and nap on those shrine grounds when I was lonely. It was somewhat calming. I did wonder if I might stumble across a curse there, but I never thought I was actually being protected, I said. A few weeks ago, your guardians appeared in my dreams and told me to stop you. They were so powerful that of course I remembered you. And that's why you contacted C, who's been my friend since childhood. So, what was it that you were convinced of today? I asked. That your guardian spirits were saying not to go near that place. She didn't say specifically what she meant, but it seemed she was talking about the incident with E. Since C was waiting, we exchanged contact information and then agreed to meet again during Golden Week before leaving the restaurant. On the drive back, C said something strange when she heard we were talking about guardian spirits. Oh yeah, not long after you moved in next door, you disappeared right in front of our eyes one day. Huh? What the hell does that mean? Both M and I said. What, you don't remember? A, B, D, E and I were walking down this road one day and you were on the other side. A and E called out and you ran out just as a car came zooming by. We thought it was going to hit you, but then you just weren't there. We were shocked, but then you appeared right in front of us, smiling, C said. I don't remember that, but there's no way. That road is a busy three-lane road. That's where the old lady who used to live behind us died during the autumn of our first grade of elementary school. There's no crossing, and so she tried to cross and got hit, right? And how on earth am I supposed to just disappear in the first place? It's true, C said. We all talked about leaving you out of the group because you might be dangerous. But E said you should stay because you were funny, and A felt responsible because he brought you to us when you met at the park. And the older two decided you should stay, but for a while after that, I was kind of afraid of you. Well, setting aside whether I actually disappeared or not, so that's why you ignored me at first. Huh. I remember when I asked you to walk home with me one day and you completely ignored me and went home alone. I could see your back from 30 meters away and you seemed so far away. I feel like B and D also kept their distance as well, I said. I'm sorry, C replied. That all happened over 20 years ago now, so please don't blame me. Now I really like you a lot. Please refrain from saying things that could be misunderstood in public. Are you two dating by any chance? M asked. You seem to get along quite well. Well, she ignored me at first. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah. I love the ice cream they have here, so I'll go get some for you guys, I said. What about yourself? C asked. I just want a bite, so I'll buy it and just let me have a bit, okay? 
I went to get some ice creams and then had a bite. Come to think of it, when did we become good friends? I said. Third grade? When we went camping that year, you did something stupid and broke your leg, but that's about all I remember. Yeah, it was around that time. I was taking a break by the stream as we were climbing the mountain, and as I tried to jump across it, I slipped and broke my leg. Everyone even tried to stop me first. They were talking about whether they should go get my dad, and you were like, That'll take too long. I'll take her back to camp myself. Then you carried me all the way back. You were smaller than me then, but you still carried me for a whole hour. When I asked if you were okay, you said, I'm a swordsman, so this is fine. Even in the car, you said, let me, and put your hand on the broken spot, and surprisingly, the pain went away. Ah, yeah, I remember that, I said. You were crying about your back hurting, but then you returned to camp with a cast on your leg. <laughs> I never thought you more of a dude than in that moment. You put your hand on her leg to heal her? Em asked. Yeah. It wasn't anything special. I saw it on TV once. They put their hands on a sick person and the pain suddenly stopped. Like, it promotes natural healing or something. I've heard that women's hands are especially strong after childbirth. They're still studying why. Wait. Emchan, he just called me a dude. Can you believe that? When I became a model, he was like, You must have photoshopped your headshot. Or, you paid the money, didn't you? Even though it was them who scouted me. And when I appeared in a magazine, he said, What kind of animal guide is this? He called me an animal. That's awful, Em agreed. Right? Ah, what was he like in junior high? Mm, he was still playing tag in the second grade. I saw him jump off the second floor veranda whilst being chased once. The kids in the other classes were all shocked by the kid chasing him was just like, Damn it, he did it again. Like, he always did that. But then we had a full school assembly just before the summer holidays, and we were banned from jumping off the verandas. What are you? A monkey? C said. Another time, there was a quiet kid who was being bullied, but then T went up to the bullies and said, Starting today, he's my friend, so if you have any business with him, then you have business with me too. After that, the bullies were missing from school for a week. What happened? Em turned her question to me. I was just a stupid kid. Sorry. I asked them to meet after school and then I beat them up. I went with the teacher and my parents to apologise after that, but it was five against one and, with things being how they were, well, they didn't blame me. You've always hated bullies, huh? C said. Even if it has nothing to do with me, if I see it, it pisses me off. I've done kendo since I was a kid, so I'm well versed in beating those stronger than me. What the hell is so fun about picking on someone weaker than you anyway? I said. Emchan, C continued, do you know the light of life? The what now? I heard about this from my friends A and E once before, 
But it's something T once said. What does it mean? About six months after he got his license, he said that he learnt this great new trick, and so he went up into the mountains with A and E. They were wondering what he was going to do, and apparently he covered the front and side windows with sunshades, and then drove using only the car navigation. A said he was scared, but E figured that it was something you could do if you practiced enough. Then, as he was driving, T said something like, Don't run on the road. And then after turning to go back, he suddenly slammed on the brakes. When they asked him why he stopped, he said an animal ran across the road. They got out of the car and, apparently, there was a tanuki. When they asked how he knew an animal was there, he said he saw the light of life. You have too much power, M said. I don't know if I'd call it that, I said, but you make it sound like there's a downside to it. I've never seen anyone affected by their guardian spirits this much before. It makes me wonder if there is perhaps some price you'll have to pay in return. A price to pay? Well, if it's really that strong, then maybe I'll die once it disappears. <laughs> eh? Both ladies said in unison. See, you know that I used to go to the hospital every year for a heart checkup until I was 10, right? Well, did you know that I once died from Kawasaki disease when I was only three months old? I couldn't drink milk, so I was getting weaker and weaker and could do nothing but lay there full of tubes. I heard that my heart stopped and my mother revived me before the doctors even arrived. I still have a scar on my thigh from where they put the camera to check my heart. I don't know if it was a dream or not, but I was alone in a field, and an old woman I didn't know was there. I felt comfortable with her, so I tried to approach her, but then she gently said, You mustn't come this way. Wait right there for your mother and father. And then she left. I remembered what happened when I was a child, and when I saw a picture of my grandmother, I was like, Ah! Oh, it's her! I had memories of her, so I thought she died after I was born, but turned out she died while my father was still a student. Are you saying she revived you? Em asked. Maybe. Hearing what you had to say today, I can kind of understand now why I've always been so lucky. Although, it's not very scientific, so I can't say I'm a big fan. I thought that if I continued talking to M, then she might sway my decision to go to the cave. So, when we parted ways, I cancelled our next get-together. As we said goodbye to M, C started crying. I don't want you to die, she said, and I had to calm her down a bit before we went home. I had everything ready to go, so, although it was a little soon, I decided I'd return to my own place. The cave exploration has started to feel real now, and the warning bells are going off even louder in my head. Even as I write this, the fear of the unknown is overwhelming me. Sorry for writing down all this conversation that dragged on. I'm trying to overcome my fear. Judging by what happened to E, it's impossible to return from that cave he visited. I keep telling myself that the reason I'm growing more fearful is because... I now know why the alarm bells keep going off. 
The next time I return to my parents' house will be during the Obon holidays. My biggest worry is whether I'll be able to flip the switch and concentrate on my work until then. Don't forget to check out Mei Taisho, Bizarre Incidents from Japan's Past, out on Amazon right now. And check out our newly revamped merchandise store at kawabana.store. And if you'd like to chat about this week's stories, come and join us in the Kawabana Discord. You can find that link in the description or on kawabana.net. You can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Tara A. Devlin for exclusive bonus stories and extras, or our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Japan for all sorts of Japanese horror you won't find anywhere else. Thanks guys, stay safe and I'll see you again next time for even more Kowabana, true Japanese scary stories from around the internet. Want even more scary stories? Head over to kowabana.net for new translations every week. You can also join our Patreon for exclusive stories you won't find anywhere else. Head over to kowabana.net now.